Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15 this morning, uh, which I think we couldn't have a more appropriate passage for the morning. It talks of the love of God um, for those who are outcasts, for those who are sinners. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage this morning, one of the things that came to my mind is the way in which we live in a world where social media provides us the opportunity to connect with people that we may not have otherwise been in connection with or otherwise stayed in connection with. Uh, And in some cases, connects us with people that, frankly, we would just as soon not be connected with anymore. Uh, For those who perhaps went to junior high or high school or college prior to the advent of Facebook or Twitter, you know that uh, occasionally you find yourself connected with somebody that you think, not only did I think I would never talk to that person again, but if I'm being honest, I didn't want to talk to that person again. A few years ago, I got a friend request from a man that I had known since I was a kid. He and I had known each other through junior high, through high school, and I was surprised when I got the Facebook request because we were not friends, really. We were acquaintances throughout junior high and high school, but I wouldn't say we were good friends. And a large reason for that was that he was a bully. He was mean. Uh, He was one of these guys that I tried to stay out of his way. And as we got toward high school and toward college, not only was he a bully, but he drank a lot. And he and I just did not share the same values. We didn't run in the same circles. He ran more in the football circle. And of course, you can tell from looking at me, I did not. I ran in different circles. And so I was surprised to get the friend request. But, you know, by then I was a pastor, so I couldn't really turn him down. So I went ahead and said yes and accepted his friend request and kind of moved on. But as I started reading his posts over the next few days and weeks, uh, this man began posting about how he had come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ at some point after college. And wow, I mean, praise the Lord, right? Right? (laughs) Now, if I'm honest, that's not the first thing I thought when I saw his posts. Uh, To my shame, the first thing I thought was, yeah, right. And then the second thing I thought was, if it's true, I'm not sure I want him in my club. And, and I began to reflect on the way this person had been and who he had been. And as, even as I read some of his posts, uh, like all of us, he still had some rough edges. And I thought, man, I'm not sure I want you in my club. And then the Spirit of God began to convict my heart. And I hate it when that happens. And I, I heard him saying, you know what? It's not your club. It's my club. It's God's club. And I don't get to decide who comes in or who stays out. Uh, If I were putting together a club, I would arrange the club with people that I like, as would most of us. People who have characteristics that I like, people who have all of the values that I agree with. And I would draw a circle and I would say everybody that I like can come inside the circle. Everybody else is not okay. You stand outside my club. And if you get okay, maybe I'll let you in. That's how my club would work. But as you read through the scripture, that's not how God's clubs work. Because what God does instead is he says, you know, everybody stands outside of my circle. And I invite you in 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And instead of asking first for us to get better, be transformed, instead God says, you know what? I will fulfill all the requirements of membership for you in Jesus. Step into my circle, into my club, and then, then he transforms us into his character. And so the way that God thinks of boundaries, the way that God thinks of who ought to be in and out is often different from the way that we do because we draw boundaries to keep people out. God runs across boundaries to pull people in. And if we're honest this morning, I think most of us, we see ourselves in one of two ways. We either see ourselves as those who do not deserve to be in or we see ourselves as those who deserve to be in the club. And where we see ourselves is going to determine a lot about how we respond to others who need to know God and who need to have an encounter with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, Luke 15, is one of the most profound and shocking series of stories in the New Testament about the limitless grace of God who wants to draw people in. And what we see from Luke 15 is this, that God loves to rescue hopeless sinners And we're all hopeless sinners. God loves to rescue hopeless sinners. And we're all hopeless sinners. There are those in here I know this morning that you see yourself as a hopeless sinner. You think of the background of your life and you think of the things you've thought, said, done, of the shame that you carry into this room this morning. And you feel that you are hopelessly outcast from the circle of God's love. And the good news of Luke 15 is that there is no sinner too far outside the circle that God doesn't want to draw them in. Others, perhaps you see yourself as pretty good. And maybe you're like I often am and you look outside the circle and you see those who make you uncomfortable, those who do not share your values, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ and you want to draw a hard boundary and keep them out and maybe shout across the line at what they need to do differently. And the message of Luke 15 is that God races across those boundaries to draw those men and women in. And all who come to a realization that they need him and trust in Jesus Christ to meet their need for forgiveness, to meet their need, to be qualified because only Jesus is qualified. Those who recognize that God lets them in. Think for a moment of the groups of people that make you the most uncomfortable, right? Maybe it is people who break the law. Maybe it is big groups like drug dealers or drug addicts or homosexuals or gossips. Maybe it's your neighbors, people in your own neighborhood that you look and you just think, boy, that person's life is a mess and they need to get it together. Maybe it's friends at work. Maybe it's a family member. And you go, those individuals are on the outside. Let me ask you this. What would be your first thought if one of those individuals came and said, I want to know God? Would you first say, you can know God, but you got to get better. You got to mow the lawn, take a bath, (laughs) shave your face, and then I'll think about introducing you. Or would you first say there is a God who loves you more than you can imagine? 
who is reaching out to you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Luke 15. Let me set the stage for us for just a minute. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, This was a common complaint, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, about Jesus, is that the tax collectors and the sinners, those who are on the fringes of Jewish culture, tended to be gravitate, tended to gravitate toward Jesus and Jesus would teach them and the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious leaders, they were the keepers of the law, would look and say, you shouldn't be hanging out with those individuals. This sort of complaint happens about Jesus a lot. Uh, Tax collectors were not particularly appreciated people, uh, not that they are today, but in the Roman world in particular and in the Jewish world in the first century, uh, you may have heard they were particularly hated. And one of the reasons was that their job was they would contract, the local tax collectors would make a contract, say, with Herod, the king of Judea, or the pretending king of Judea. They would make a contract with Herod to collect taxes on behalf of Rome, and then Herod would turn around and give some of the taxes to Rome, and he would also pay these tax collectors for the privilege of collecting taxes for the hated enemy of the Jewish people. So they were hated. Lucian, a philosopher and satirist in the second century, says their moral standing was the same as, quote, pimps, yes men, adulterers, and informers. So a low, low group of people. And the Pharisees' concern is that by hanging out with those people, Jesus, this teacher, is diminishing the holiness of God's law and threatening the holiness of the Jewish people. They may be thinking of passages like Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, you need to practice purity and stand apart from those who are sinners. And what Jesus explains to them over and over and over again is, I'm not hanging out with them so that I will pick up their values or pick up their sin. I'm hanging out with them so that they can know God and be forgiven and free of their sin. And so when this had come up earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 5, Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, the reason I'm here is to go out and find those tax collectors, those sinners, those adulterers, those people who are on the fringes and draw them in because God loves them because they are his children and he made them. And Jesus says this over and over again, but they don't listen to what he says. So here in Luke 15, we have a series of stories in which Jesus drives home his point. And there are three stories. There's a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Three stories. There are three images of God, the shepherd, the woman, and the father. In all three stories, God really is the main character. And that's important because when we get to the third one, what we commonly call the story of the prodigal son, we often tend to think of that younger son as the main character. He's not the main character. This is a story about God and God's character. Three images of God, three lost items, a sheep, a coin, a son. 
Three parties. Each of these stories ends with a big party when the item is found. But there's one point, and that is this. God loves to rescue sinners. God loves to rescue sinners to go out and save those who cannot save themselves. And what's more, we're going to see that the means by which God rescues sinners is Jesus himself. And so Jesus tells these three stories beginning with the story of the lost sheep. So we're going to start there. Look at verse three. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we begin here with the story of the lost sheep. Now, I have not spent a lot of time around sheep. I grew up in North Dallas, so we didn't have a whole lot of sheep around. Uh, But from what I have read, when a sheep gets lost, uh, what it does is it quickly becomes frightened. And the reason is this, sheep have no real natural means of defense, right? Never heard of someone in the hospital for a sheep bite, right? They don't have particularly sharp teeth. Uh, They don't have claws by which they can scratch. They have little hooves, you know, maybe they can put them up and go like this, but they can't do a whole lot. They're fluffy and they taste great, right? So they are prey for everything. Sheep are like nature's marshmallow, like that's what they are. And so they quickly get scared and frightened. And what they will do if they get lost is they will go hide under a bush or a rock and they will just bleat for help. They'll just lie there, meh, right? And they get so afraid. And the challenge for the shepherd is that bleeding to a a lion or a wolf. It sounds like snack, right? The word snack. And so a lion or a wolf will come along and they will quickly find that sheep. And the sheep becomes his own worst enemy because he's calling for help, but he attracts predators. And so the shepherd will leave the 99 sheep. And as Jesus tells the story, he says, which one of you, in other words, anybody would do this. Any good shepherd will do this. You will leave the 99 sheep in the open field to go chase down that lost one because you know that time is of the essence and he is helpless and he is alone. And maybe the shepherd leaves him with like a, a, an assistant shepherd or an intern shepherd or something like that. Okay. He, but he is not there. The one who can really take care of them is not there and he will go find that sheep. And apparently by the time he gets there, its legs are so rubbery from being afraid that it can't walk. So he'll pick up that sheep, probably 65, 70 pounds, drape it over his shoulder and walk it back. And anybody listening to this story in the first century would have recognized this imagery from the Old Testament. Who's the good shepherd? God is the good shepherd. Look at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life or he returns my soul back to him. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. That's what God does. He chases down that sheep. What does the sheep contribute to this process? getting lost, right? And calling for help. That's all that he does. So when Jesus says, you know what? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. His point is this, that repentance for this sinner is to recognize 
that he's lost, that his way doesn't work, and to call to God for help. And in his mercy and his grace, God looks and finds and saves that sinner's life. It's interesting, he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That second category does not exist. Jesus is being tongue-in-cheek. Who are these righteous people? Well, it's the Pharisees who believe they need no repentance. But as we walk through the stories, we're going to see that category doesn't exist. All of us are hopeless sinners in need of God to chase us down. So he moves then from the lost sheep, secondly, to the lost coin, verses 8 to 10. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Same type of imagery here, that you have a woman who loses a coin. Now notice we go from 100 sheep to 10 coins. Both the value, and, the value is increased and the number is decreasing. And back then, this woman probably lived in a home that was made of cheap basalt stone, black stone with a few little slim windows high up in the walls. So it would have been hard to see this coin. So she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house, which is probably covered in dirt until she finds that coin. And then she calls all her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice, I found the coin. And what Jesus is getting at is if you lose a sheep or if you lose your money, you care. You care, don't you? And when you find it, you call everybody together. And he says, that's what God does when he finds a lost sinner. It was funny, in the car yesterday, out of the blue, maybe because I'd been talking a little bit about this passage this week, my five-year-old son goes, Daddy, I don't understand why they'd have a party for a coin. Just a coin. And so we talked about it. I said, well, have you ever lost anything that you cared about? And uh, I knew the answer was going to be his flashlight. I bought him a $4 flashlight at Lowe's and he lost it like weeks ago. We've never found it. And he said, yeah, my flashlight. I said, how would you feel if you found it? He goes, good. I'd feel good. I said, would you tell any of your friends? Yeah. He started naming friends that he would tell about his flashlight. I said, what would you do with the flashlight if you found it? He goes, I would put it where it goes, where it would never get lost again. That's the point of these two stories. When God finds those who are lost, he takes them in and he says, you will never be lost again. And all of heaven rejoices because somebody who was lost said, I cannot make my way work. And they ask God to to find them. And where Jesus is going to head next is if you love your coins and you love your sheep, Why don't you love God's children? Why is it that you complain when the sinners and the outcasts and the tax collectors draw near to me so they can know God? And so he begins this third story, which is obviously the longest one and the most famous one in the passage, the story of the lost son. And again, we need to remember God is the main character. And Jesus begins now, there were a hundred sheep, there were 10 coins, there's two sons. Sheep and coins are replaceable. Sons are not. Most parents have had at least a moment where you thought you had misplaced a child, right? It happened to my wife and me at the church picnic 
several years ago with our then two-year-old middle daughter. She was on the playground, went around behind one of the pieces of equipment, and by the time I got around there, she was gone. Three or four hundred people there, and I panicked. For 20 minutes, I panicked until finally she showed up. A college student had picked her up and is this yours, right? Yes, it is, okay? <laughs> and we rejoiced and we felt relief. And anybody who's felt that sense of panic at a lost child will resonate with what Jesus is saying. And as the story begins, the tension sets up. He says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now you need to understand to ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive was beyond an insult. Okay. It would be an insult today. If you went to to your parents while they were still alive and said, can you go ahead and raid the 401k and give me the money that I have coming when you're dead? Right. Do you hear the disrespect in a patriarchal culture? uh, This was Beyond disrespect, this was a statement that this boy wishes to sever the relationship with his family. The father would be perfectly within his rights to beat the son and then disown him. There was a period of time when my younger brother was about four where he would uh, ask people if he could have certain items from them when they were dead. (laughs) Maybe a watch or a shirt or whatever it is. And uh, it was embarrassing for all of us, right? Even at like seven, I knew, ooh, like, ooh, okay? But he got away with it because he was four, okay? It's not cute when you're 40. It's not cute when you're a grown-up. And this is a huge insult. And what's astounding is the father lets him do it. And for the first time, we get the sense this is not an ordinary Middle Eastern father. Instead of disowning, instead of beating him, it says the father divided up his wealth. Now remember, there really wasn't a 401k in those days. So the wealth would have been sheep, cows, and land primarily. And what has to happen is that the father would give this younger son probably a third of the estate. The older son inherited a double portion, two-thirds. The younger son would get a third. He would divide it up, give sheep, cattle, land to this boy. But then what has to happen before the boy can leave town... He has to sell it all. And so it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together. In other words, it has the idea he turns it all into cash and he goes away. Now, why does he go away so quickly? Partly because he wants to separate from the family, but partly because uh, doing this sort of thing in a relatively small community like they probably lived would have raised the anger and ire of the other villagers. This boy is taking his inheritance, his father's wealth that his father worked for his whole life for. He's dividing up, he's selling it off and he's leaving town. So he does it quickly and he leaves town quickly and he gets away from his family. And almost as quickly as he liquidates it, he squanders it. It's all gone. Said he squandered his estate with loose living or or wasteful spending. Later, the older son will accuse him of spending it on prostitutes. That may or may not be true. What we do know is that it's wasteful. He just, he has expensive tastes. He wastes the money like that. It's gone. 
Now, when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So bad luck compounds with his bad choices. The economy tanks. There's a famine. He cannot eat. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. The only job he can get, this young Jewish boy, is feeding pigs which would have been an unclean, dishonorable profession. Every time you touch a pig, every time you touch their food, you are ceremonially unclean. You cannot go near other Jewish people. You cannot go near the temple. You cannot worship. This would have drawn a gasp from the crowd. He is feeding pigs. Not only is he near the pigs, he's serving the pigs. Not only is he serving the pigs, but then it goes on and it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. That would have been carob pods, like little peas, and no one was giving him anything. In other words, he is, he is touching the pigs. He is serving the pigs. And now he is envying the pigs. He's going to his boss and he says, can you please just let me eat a little of the pig's food? And the boss actually says, no, that's for the pigs. That's how low this kid has sunk. He's all alone. He's separated from his family. He has nothing to eat. He's spent the inheritance. If he goes home, he faces certain shame. In fact, the Jews had a cutting off ceremony for sons who dishonored their fathers called the Kazaza ceremony. And as he would walk into the village, it is likely that they would grab a pot of burned corn, burned nuts, and they would shatter it in his presence. And then they would say, this boy is cut off from his people and they'd drive him away. He doesn't really have any good options. He might be working for this pig farmer to try to earn back the money. But there's no way you could earn that money back. It'd be like working at Denny's to try to pay back a million dollars. You would never get there at 10 bucks an hour or whatever they pay. Ever. He can't pay it back. He can't feed himself. And then it says, when he came to his senses, literally when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. In other words, he hatches a plan. He knows that dad is at least a generous employer. He doesn't expect to be part of the family again. I'll get up. I'll beg for mercy from my father. Maybe he'll hire me. Be better than feeding the pigs. And so he concocts this plan. And it says he gets up and he starts to come to his father. Now, again, in order to understand what's about to happen at the climax of the story, you need to remember the first two stories. Remember how the the shepherd had gone out and looked everywhere for the sheep and the woman swept the house and looked everywhere for the coin. This father similarly had been looking for the son, even though he's been in the background. We know from what happens next that the father had been looking for the son because it says he sees him while he's still a long way off. Imagine a small village where the homes are very close packed together and the wealthier members of the village much like this father would have probably had a two-story home in the center of town on a high hill and imagine this father standing in this closely packed village on the balcony and every day every single day he goes up on the balcony and he scans the horizon in the direction where his son left and day after day after day after day he looks And he looks and he looks and he looks. And then it says, as the son is coming, the father sees him coming a long way off because he has been 
looking for him. And he felt compassion. He loved him. He loved him. The first thing this father felt was not anger, was not a desire to draw a boundary, but love. He felt compassion. And it says he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. Now, dad here is not wearing sweatpants. Okay? You have to imagine he's wearing a long robe, really like, like a dress or a skirt that's tied in the middle. Some of you ladies perhaps have tried to run in a skirt or a long dress, right? And you know that it, it's a bit of a humiliating and awkward experience, right? To grab the hem of that dress and pull it up a little bit, maybe in the rain, and you run, right? But you don't have arms, and so you're like this, right? Embarrassing for you, utterly humiliating for a Middle Eastern patriarch. It wasn't done. Actually, moms might run like this. Dads never, ever, ever, ever. But this dad doesn't care. And you know why? He wants to get to that son before the villagers. And he sees him coming. And he grabs that robe and he runs across town. And he embraces him and he hugs him and he weeps and he kisses him. Because he's so glad he's home. And the son, the son begins his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he stops there. He doesn't add the part about being a hired hand. You know why? Because that would have been a huge insult after seeing the compassion and mercy of the father. When the father runs and hugs him, it's clear. You're still in my family. To then go, hey, dad, could you pay me to mow the lawn? Right? Maybe I can earn my way back into your favor would be an insult. And what the father does, then he says quickly to his servants, he turns around quickly, bring the best robe and put, him on, put it on him. The robe was necessary for what's about to happen, which is a banquet. It would have been clothing for a guest of honor at a big banquet. Remember, the boy is probably still covered in pig filth and he smells. And the father doesn't say, take a bath. He says, you know what? Cover him up. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was a symbol of family inclusion and possibly authority. Bring him back in the family. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals. They went barefoot. And he says, bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. That is the lavish love of God the Father. Seeking the lost, drawing them in, loving them more than anything in the world, more than a sheep, more than a coin. And as soon as this boy realizes, I need help, and as soon as he comes toward the father, the father runs to meet him, forgives him, and makes him part of the family again. Now, what isn't directly stated in here, but becomes clearer as you walk through the New Testament, is that Jesus himself is the means by which God seeks and saves the lost. Luke 19, verse 10, says this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. See that? Luke 19, Jesus refers right back to this story. That's what I'm here for. God sent me for that. And the Pharisees want to keep the sinners out, and Jesus says, no, God sent me to draw them in. There's one more character in the story. And that is the elder son. Now the older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to them, to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Now, again, the father acts contrary to any other Middle Eastern father. If the son had refused like this again, the father could beat him. And yet the father comes out just like he did with the younger son. And he says, please come in, come into the party, celebrate with us. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years, I have been serving you. Count how many times I is in his little speech. I have never neglected a command of yours, yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice not my brother, right? Dads, if you've ever come home and your wife said, guess what your son did today, right? The answer is not normally gave to a charity or read Tolstoy or something like that, okay? It's a distancing term. This son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Okay, most of what this elder son says just probably isn't true. I've never neglected a command of yours. Really? What about right now? When your father is begging you to come in and you're outside. This son of yours devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Really? You know that? You know that? Where have you been? You've been here. You've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Why do you have different friends than your father? Why are you running in different circles? But when this son of yours came, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice the father's response. Son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. You want a fattened calf. Why didn't you ask? You want all I have. Why didn't you ask? It's because you think you can earn what your father gives for free. You think you can earn a relationship with me. Uh, Nothing you did has earned the relationship with me. You're living in my house. You're living on my land. Everything I have already belongs to you. You're part of the family. Don't you get that? But your son, he was dead. He was dead. He was gone. We thought he was gone forever. And now he's back to life. This is a resurrection moment. We had to celebrate. And that's where the story ends. And if this were a movie, you'd be panicking right now. What's the end? Does the older son come in? Does he stay out? What happens? And that's the point. What's going to happen? Because remember who he's telling this story to. He's telling this story to people who are often like you and me, who want to draw these lines and keep some people out, some people away from our club, when God runs to bring them in through Jesus Christ. And the question that's implied at the end of the story is, are you going to let them in? Will you receive the grace of God? And will you extend the grace of God? Will you accept the grace of God? Will you extend the grace of God? If you're one of those this morning and you feel that you're a hopeless sinner, you wonder how you could possibly be forgiven of the things you've done and said and thought. The message of Luke 15 is that God already loves you in Jesus Christ. And any who trust in Jesus and believe in his death and resurrection, for forgiveness of their sins, for eternal life and a relationship with God. Anybody who does that, Jesus, God opens up his arms and welcomes them in.
the book of Luke in particular communicates there's nobody so far away that God won't run to find them. If you are one of those who struggles to extend grace, the question of this story is will you and I be like the elder brother? Or will we reflect the character of the father and extend that grace to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members, even to our enemies, even to people we don't like? As Mike mentioned earlier, the reason we're starting a new campus is not so we can have more seats full. It's not so we can expand the name of Grace Bible Church. It's because across this community, there are men and women and children who do not know the love of God through Jesus Christ. And they feel on the outside. And God has sent us in the name of Jesus to tell them the message that he died and rose again and he wants to draw them in. And so will we view our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our friends, our enemies as those for whom Jesus died, that God loves, that God is seeking for. And extend to them the grace of God. That's the message of Luke 15. And that's our calling. And the ministry that God has called us to because of his son. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful so much for your word. And for a passage that speaks of the lavish, unlimited, free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray we would accept that. And constantly remember how you gave your only son to save wicked, rebellious sons and daughters like us. I pray if there are any in here this morning who do not know yet your love, who do not yet have a relationship with you through Jesus, I pray they'd believe this morning and receive eternal life. Father, for those of us who struggle to extend your grace, I pray we would remember that we too are hopeless sinners who are in need of the grace of God and only stand before you in a relationship with you because of what Jesus has done and because you sought us out. And I pray we would be your ambassadors to the world to proclaim that grace. Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.